Uh, we're going to be looking today in Romans chapter 10 at a message I call Outstretched Hands. Romans chapter 10, verse 21. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, God says, I have stretched out my hands. Since we're hearing so much these days about hands, I thought it would be a good time for us to consider what God has to say about the stretching forth of His hands. I've said it a lot, these are the days of trusting Jesus and washing hands. I've thought a lot about growing up as a boy, how my mother would frequently ask me, son, did you wash your hands? And when I said, as boys so often do, yeah, sure, mom, uh, then she would say, let me see. And then she would say, go wash your hands. You know, a lot of times she'd skip the let me see part and just go straight to it. Go wash your hands. Something about the tone of my voice, I guess, betrayed the fact that I really hadn't washed my hands at all. I don't know how my mom, I was convinced mom could read my mind. And somehow when I got married, she seemed to pass that ability along to my wife. I don't know how that happened. Just uh, something happened. Uh, but anyway, uh, she certainly was able to tell uh, very easily whether I had washed my hands or not. And we hear so much about it these days, so much of it on our minds. But it's not just a washing of hands. Uh, now we've given up that time-honored practice of shaking hands. When somebody puts their hand out to us, uh, it is a natural response for us to reach out and shake hands. There is the expectation that someone then is going to respond to that. I'm reaching out my hand. We reach out our hand in response. And uh, usually we're going to shake hands, maybe give a smile. Sometimes a smile doesn't quite make it to the person's eyes. But I can assure you, if we reach out to our, hand, our hands in a normal kind of environment to someone, uh, an offer of a handshake, a friendship, a greeting, and someone refuses, uh, that sends a very strong message. Even if it's in a presidential debate, it sends a message. Uh, now, a lot of times these days, of course, we're quick to explain, oh, no, we can't do that, or maybe I've had a cough, or, or any one of a hundred other explanations that we can give that helps smooth that over. It's still awkward, though, we have to admit. I know that a lot of you folks are thrilled, thrilled uh, that we're giving up the handshake, and you know who you are. <laughs> but for a lot of others of us, it's really a struggle the outstretched hand is not just a greeting. Sometimes an outstretched hand is an offer of help. Can I give you a hand with that? Uh, can I help you with that is what we're saying. And to refuse that offer of help by saying, no, no, I've got it. Uh, that sends a message to them. Either it's, we're saying, I don't need help or or I really uh, don't even think you ought to be asking me that I need help. Or maybe it's even I don't need your help. But it does give a message. That's why when somebody asks me if they can help me, I try to always say sure. Uh, because that's a very nice thing for somebody do, to do. Can I give you a hand with that? Can I help you with that? Sometimes the outstretched hands are a symbol of affection. Uh, children recognize it when we give them that look and we bend over and we say like this. Uh, even our pets recognize uh, that say when we are extending our hands and we are offering them an embrace, a sign of affection. 
Sometimes the outstretched hand is one of rescue. We think about a person maybe who is uh, stuck in the mud or who has fallen and is struggling to get up or maybe who is trapped somehow and they need help and we reach out to hand, a hand then. It is a hand of salvation, a hand of deliverance. It's hard to imagine a circumstance where a drowning person, for example, would refuse a hand offered to save them. That again sends a strong message. I would rather die than take your hand or take help from you. And it's in that last context, I think, that we find Romans chapter 10. Because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 2, Isaiah said, I have stretched out my hands, God speaking all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. All day long, God said. All day day long. Sometimes the days are long. I, maybe you've seen that Facebook funny that's been circulating uh, that says, you know, I've eaten 22 times and slept 13 times and it's still today. Sometimes, you know, the days are long and they're drawn out and it seems like they'll never pass. But it isn't just the length of time because, listen, when the eternal God calls our attention to the passage of a certain length of time, He does that for our benefit, not for His. All day long. We get the picture, the image in of God circling around us again and again and again, extending His hands to us, extending to us an offer of help, reaching out to us again and again and again. And being refused. Chances are if we stretch out our hand to somebody in a greeting of friendship and and they refuse and just give us that hostile stare. Chances are we'll never put a hand out to them again. We offer somebody help and they refuse it. Can I give you a hand with that? No, I got it. Are you sure? We might say if we really care about them, if we're really concerned about them, if we know that they're doing something maybe that's too big for them and they really need help, are you sure? You're going to hurt yourself. Let me help you. So out of deep, deep concern for the well-being of another person, we might offer twice. But God says all day long time after time after time again and again and again I've reached out to you and you've refused this morning then I want us to spend some time considering the truth of this great passage and we'll begin early on in Romans chapter 10 by considering the record uh, and we'll see why I call it that brethren my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved for I bear them record there it is I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. Right up front then, Paul tells us clearly uh, the source of their rejection of God. When God is reaching out their hands, uh, His hands to us, people are responding to that by saying, we've got this. 
I don't need help. I've got it covered. I'm doing fine. I'm doing this without you, God. I don't need you. And this betrays a threefold, very serious problem that Paul reveals to us in the text. First of all, uh, it reveals that people are really ignorant of God's righteousness. You see, we have no idea. We don't even have a standard by which to measure the holiness and the righteousness of God. The Bible says, in Him is light, pure, unapproachable light. And in Him is no darkness, neither a shadow of turning. And that's the way the Bible's way of telling us that God is holy. And there isn't even a shadow, not even a consideration of anything evil or sinful or bad. You see, we define goodness and righteousness on the basis of our own experience. We're good as compared to others who are not good. Or others who are bad. Or others who are evil. But in this very concept of saying to God with the outstretched hands, don't need it, God. It betrays a stunning ignorance on the part of humanity of the righteousness of God. I love to talk to people who have decided that they don't believe in God. I always ask them about why. They don't believe in God. And invariably, as they are describing to me all the reasons why that they don't believe in God and all the things they think about God that causes them to reject Him, I'm usually able to surprise them by saying, well, you know what? I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. Because invariably, the God that they don't believe in is not the God of Scripture. It's not the God who loves us. It's not the God of outstretched hands to us all day long. It is some caricature of God. Something that they've invented in their own mind. Or something that they've been given by someone else. The God they reject is not the God of Scripture. Man is ignorant of the righteousness of God. And he betrays that by rejecting God's outstretched hand. Second part of the problem then is that man is going about to establish his own righteousness. That means that not only is humanity ignorant of God's righteousness, but there's also an ignorance of our own depravity and sinfulness. Let's ask ourselves the question, can I fix me? Can we fix ourselves? Do we really have so much pride that we're able to say that I am the solution to all of my own problems and that I can supply all of my own needs? The Old Testament book of Judges describes a time when there was no law in the land of Israel. No king or governmental authority to enforce the law. And so over and over again in the Judges you'll find the Bible saying that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When it comes then to us saying, well I have my own uh, idea of goodness and I'm going to go about and establish my own righteousness, my own idea of goodness is that humanity tends to define what is good on the basis of what we think or what we feel. If everybody did what was right in his own eyes, everybody did what they wanted to do, and then convinced themselves that whatever it was they wanted to do was right, then that's a standard of right, a standard of goodness, or as the Bible puts it, a standard of righteousness that anybody could live up to. I do what I want. 
I do whatever makes me feel good. And whatever I want and whatever I feel makes me feel good then is what is right. So I'm right. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. I don't have time to develop that for you. I think we can all see the fallacy of that because uh, I don't think any of us would want to live in a world uh, where uh, there was no law and where everybody did whatever they wanted to. Uh, I don't think we want that world. But that's what we ultimately get to when we do away with God's standard of righteousness, when we do away with God's description of what humanity is and, and what we are, then we're left to make it up on our own. And with the definition in those two problems, he goes on then to say not only are we ignorant of God's righteousness, and not only then are we ignorant of man's depravity and our sinfulness, But because of those two things, then there's a refusal to submit to God's offer of righteousness. You see, really all it takes to uh, accept God's outstretched hand to us is to admit that we need Him. To admit that we can't do this on my own. To admit that I need help. To admit that I can't be pleasing to God. To admit that I'm a sinner and that I've failed, that I've fallen short. Of the glory of God. And then we can receive God's offer of help. I read a quote this week from a famous television personality. If I called her name, you'd all know her. But she said, I believe I have a healthy common sense and therefore have no need of religion. There it is. I can be good, as we so often hear these days, without believing in God. I can be a good man, I can be a good person, I can be a good uh, father, I can be a good mother. Without God, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. So it is the picture then of God in heaven reaching out to us with His offer of true righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. We reject it. Say, no thank you God, I've got it. I'll be okay on my own. The holy God stretching out His hand to a sinful people. And we have the audacity to say all day long. No thanks. That is the record of humanity. But along with the record Thank God we also see the remedy. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Mankind is ignorant of the nature of sinful rebellion just as we are ignorant of the righteousness and holiness of God and ignorant of our own depravity. I could make up a list of sins. If, we all, if I ask you all today to make up your list of, of the worst sins and start with the worst, we all might have a different list. But the worst sin is a sin that condemns people in the sight of God for all eternity 
And that is a sin of unbelief. I didn't say that. Jesus did. John chapter 3 and verse 18, He who believes in Him, that's on Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief shuts the door of heaven. Unbelief is the root of why men reject God's outstretched hand. Paul was quoting from Moses in the Old Testament to confront those who were refusing God's offer of help and salvation. He he points out to them that Moses told them long ago they didn't have to climb up into the highest mountain. They didn't have to ascend up into heaven. They didn't have to go on some kind of a pilgrimage in order to find God in some remote, uh, high, uh, awful location that we have to get to. He doesn't call us to swim the deepest sea in order to go down into the depths and somehow discover the truth about God instead he places this belief in our hearts the question is how does it get there and again God does not leave us to wonder or to use our imagination in order to make up where it comes from Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Where does belief come from? Belief comes from the Word of God as we hear it and we understand it. I've heard it over and over again. I just can't believe. I've tried to believe. I want to believe, but I just couldn't. The list of the way people say that just goes on and on and on. As you say to me today, you can't believe. For some of you listening, you might be listening to a sermon for the first time in years. For some, maybe the first time in your whole life. Maybe you're living because, listening because or watching because your whole family has invited you in or maybe somebody forwards this to you and you say, well, I, I would love to be able to believe. Uh, and I've, I've tried, but I just can't. You don't go to church. <clears throat> you don't read the Bible. You don't listen to sermons. You've never heard the gospel uh, preached. You don't hear about Jesus. You don't know about what the gospel really says. What passes for preaching these days in so many cases is far removed from a clear gospel presentation. It actually muddies the water rather than being a vehicle for the Spirit to operate. Listen, let me say this clearly. The Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's how faith is born in our heart and life you're not going to believe it on your own you're not going to make it up on your own faith comes when the power of the word of God is infused then with the power of the mighty Holy Spirit of God and it works in you so that you believe in your heart and then you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord I believe it I've accepted him I've embraced it So here's God then with His hand stretched out with an offer of salvation. But the record of humanity is one of stunning and even vehement rejection. That is the record. But the gospel is the remedy as God uses the mighty power 
of the Word. Some of you listening in today may be sensing something down deep inside of you. That is not the power of my human persuasion. I've often said it. If I can talk you into something, somebody else will talk you out of it. I don't want you uh, to believe just because I'm, I'm doing something or even to think that it has anything to do with me. The power that calls out to our soul, the power that penetrates into the heart, into the mind of men is the power of the Word of God as the Gospel is preached in the power of the Spirit of God. And He, and He alone, fulfills what He promised that He would do. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Let me tell you something this morning. When the Word of God gets you, the Word of God will keep you. Simon Peter would use his uh, last few days, maybe on this earth, uh, to write those two precious epistles that we find near the end of the New Testament. And one of the things that he wanted to say to us was the power of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. You were born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. The Bible isn't just a book, it's the word of God. Jesus wasn't just a man. He is the living Word of God. That's why He would say in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. It doesn't matter how popular it is today to talk about saving the earth. And I, I realize how important that cause is to those who have learned to revere the earth itself as your Creator. I want to remind you today that Jesus did not come into this world to save the earth. He came to this world to save people, not the planet. People. You are born again then, Simon Peter says, not by corruptible seed, not by things that die, but by the eternal Word of God. That's why that God can offer you eternal life. Because of His eternal Word. So we have then the record. And, and the record is one of humanity's rejection. I bear them record today, he said. Humanity's rejection. The remedy, which is the truth of the gospel. The word of faith we preach. Which is nigh you. Even in your heart. Even in your mouth. Now we'll finish out today by looking at the report. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Once more, Paul returns to quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He spoke of the work of Jesus on the cross hundreds of years before he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Is where Paul is quoting. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But before Isaiah even gave the message, he asked the question, Who has believed our report? Isaiah knew, even as I know today, that he was speaking to a people who had already made up their minds. They made up their minds to reject the word that He was going to give them before they ever even heard it. But I want to bring up to your mind today the record, the record, the report, the record and the rejection, but also the report that we see in this passage. Who has believed our report? You see, Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, predicted that the Messiah would be rejected, wounded, and beaten. He told us that He would be brought forth out of prison, and He was. He told us that He would die with the wicked, and He did. But He told us also that He would be buried with the rich, which was something really impossible to consider, that a man would be executed as a convicted criminal but then be given a rich man's burial. Isaiah had no way of knowing that one day Jesus would be approached by a woman with an alabaster box full of ointment. How much was it worth? It was worth a year's salary. Fifty, sixty thousand dollars, seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollars, who knows? She would break that box and pour it out on her. And many people who saw it were amazed at the extravagant offering that she made. Some complained and criticized. Well, that could have been taken and and sold. And we could have done a lot with that money. But Jesus told them, no, you let them alone. Let her alone. This woman hath wrought a good work on me because, he said, she's come beforehand to anoint me. Anoint my body for the burial. Isaiah had no way of knowing so long ago, so many centuries before, that Jesus would be anointed with an extravagant, rich man's anointing. Something that would be reserved for the greatest of kings, for the wealthiest of men. He had no way of knowing that. But it happened. He had no way also of knowing that a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea would offer his own newly finished family crypt that he had spent a fortune on so that Jesus would not be buried in a potter's field somewhere, but that he would be buried among the rich. You see, Isaiah was telling that story before it ever even happened. Hundreds of years before it happened. Centuries of humanity's rejection has not changed the truth. Jesus 
was put to death on a Roman cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was guarded by a squad of Roman soldiers, but no grave could hold him because he came crashing victorious out of that grave. You see, I want us to consider that report. The report was made hundreds of years before it happened. We could understand how that someone could watch something happen and then give a report. But God wrote the report before it happened. But as if that wasn't enough then, He sent His uh, emissaries, His writers, His apostles to write it down for us as it happened. And shortly thereafter. And still today, He is reporting the same event. Rejection from millions of people will never change the truth that Jesus died and was buried, but he rose again. But the question in Isaiah's day, when God wrote the report hundreds of years before he gave it, is still the question for all of us today. Will we believe the report? I heard a story about a man many years ago who moved to the far northern reaches of our country. He lived near a river. It was bitterly cold and the river was frozen. He had to make a trip to town. It was so cold. It was a long way to the bridge and so he decided that he would, instead of going all the way to the bridge to get to town, he would, he would cross the river on the ice. But as he walked the story goes, he thought of the ice. As he neared the middle of the river, he grew fearful. What if the ice doesn't hold? What if I fall through? There's nobody around. They'll never find me. My wife will never even know what happened to me. So in his fear, he thought to himself, perhaps I should crawl. So there on the ice, he got down on his hands and knees and began to crawl. After a while, his, his, his fear just overcame him. He said, well, I, I, I need to stretch out. And so he spread out on his stomach. And then he began to worm his way on across the ice. And he suddenly heard a sound. A very loud, crashing kind of sound. And immediately he thought that the ice was cracking. And he was surely going to die. He cried out, save me, help me, somebody help me. He expected to feel the, the, the weight of that frigid water rushing against him, but it didn't happen. The sound kept getting louder. Finally, he turned to look. It was a man with a wagon full of logs being pulled by two horses. And that was what was making the sound. He watched in astonishment then as that man drove his wagon across the river up to the other side. I want you to know that 2,000 years ago and more, Jesus Christ swam the river, walked across the river rather for us, crossed the river, showed us the way. And we can be certain then that His way is safe. He stands on the other side of the river saying, Come to me. Come to me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We don't have to fear because Jesus has crossed to the other side and He reaches His hands out to us. 
understanding then what God has done for us in providing this incredible remedy through the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we understand better today why I would say there's no sin worse than the sin of unbelief. To refuse to believe is to reject God's outstretched hands of salvation because we'd rather die in our sins than take His hand. There's no greater power than the faith of Jesus Christ. Not just faith. You can believe in yourself. But faith in Jesus Christ is a faith to live with and a faith to die with. The issue for you today is will you believe the report? Will you believe the report? Will you accept God's outstretched hand? Will you receive His offer of deliverance and salvation? Or will you reject it and say to God, no, I've got it. I could end the message there, but uh, there's, there's a little more. Because this is a time, you see, if we can understand that God's hands are stretched out to us, then we could perhaps also a little bit better understand how that we need to stretch our hands out to one another. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11 says, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If God so loved us, and He did, if God so loved us that He reaches out His hands to us, then we should do the same and reach out our hands for one another. No, we can't save one another. We can't deliver somebody from the condemnation of God. Only God can save you. But we can help one another. After the message is over today, if you're tuned in to YouTube, I want you to do a quick YouTube search for the name Edna, Edna Register Boone. You might have to type in 1918 flu, Edna Register Boone. That's this lady's name. It's an 11 minute video that she made in Alabama when she was 100 years old. And she was interviewed by the state who was interviewing people who had gone through the 1918 flu epidemic. Uh, She was born in 1907. She was 100 when they made the video, so it had to have been made in 2007 or so. And I know that she died in 2011 because all it takes is a quick Google search and you can bring up her obituary. Find out she was one of 11 children But to listen to her describe what it was like in her rural Alabama existence as the nation was rocked by three calamities, she described. Number one was the boll weevil. We don't even think about that one. Number two, of course, World War I. And then as if those two things weren't enough, then came the flu. Now, what stood out to me as I listened to this was uh, of many things. And, uh, and again, let me tell you, it is worth looking at. You, the things she describes sound eerily familiar to you. One of the things, though, that really stood out to me was as she described how her family, with 11 children now, how her dad planted a large patch of sweet potatoes. 
And she said that in the coming year, about half their community survived on her dad's potato patch. To see then how that people stretched out their hands to one another and helped one another. And how they received that help. It's worth listening to. You know, Jesus told us it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it is. And that's true of help. It's a whole lot more blessed to be on the helping side than the being helped side. But both of those sides are real. I want to remind you, it is man's refusal of help that causes him to say to God, I've got this. I don't need you. And now it's a time for us to respect the fact that maybe we need the help of others. (coughs) There are people in our community who are at great risk. And you need to stay in. And your self-reliance will tell you, you know, I can make, I can do this. I, I don't need help. But you do need help. And I want to remind you, there are people in our church family who are willing to help you and want to help you. Uh, you may have lost your job and you may be struggling. And you say, well, you know, we'll get by. We'll make it. You may be wondering how you're going to feed your family this week. Listen. We're not like the federal government. We don't have $2 trillion to offer, but we do have resources. We can see to it that your family uh, can get help. If we can't help you, we'll find somebody who can. So what I want us to do is to remind ourselves in this whole specter of the reaching out of a helping hand. Let's take both sides of that. If we need help, let's be willing to receive it. And if we have help to give, let's be willing to give it. It's a great time for us to live out 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11. If God so loves us, we ought also to love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you today for reminding us of this great passage in Romans 10 and how you reach out to us with your hands of love and acceptance, offering us salvation. I pray for those, Lord, who might be hearing this message of the gospel for the first time. Maybe they've rejected you, but they they were rejecting only what they thought about you, not you as you really are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd do what only you can do, and that is to take your word and penetrate the hearts of people so that they might believe on you and receive the salvation that you're offering as you reach your hands out to us. And God, I also pray as your people, Pray for our church that as you have loved us, we might love one another. And as you have reached out your hands to us all day long, so also God help us to reach out our hands to one another. And to receive that help when it's offered. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.